Hi, folks. Uh, welcome to the Forum for European Philosophy. Uh, and today's event is on the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in science. So I want to say welcome to the audience. Welcome to the podcast listeners. Uh, we have a fantastic event lined up for you tonight. Uh, we're going to start with some comments by Dr. Mari Sakalariadu. She's a professor of physics at King's College London. Uh, we'll be following that with uh, Bozo the Bouncing Seal, <clears throat> uh, with my, myself, Brian Roberts. I'm an assistant professor at, uh, at London School of Economics and Philosophy and a philosopher of physics. And finally, we'll have a discussion with the three of us that includes Dr. Eleanor Knox. She's a lecturer at King's College London. And finally, we'll open it up to questions. So I hope you guys will all participate in the discussion. Uh, so without further ado, uh, let me introduce our kind of chair, Eleanor Knox. Okay, great. So thank you very much, um, Brian. So I'm going to chair because Brian has, <laughs> is, uh, is talking. Um, but So first up, we have uh, Professor uh, Mary Sakalariadu, um, <laughs> who's going to give us a bit of a physicist perspective on the problem. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, so, from the point of view of a physicist, um, you know, what is a distinction between a physicist and scientist in general and anybody else is whenever we see a, at any physical phenomenon, the first thing that we do is we start wondering why. What is that? Why do we have it? So, let me take uh, an example, like uh, if we take the rainbow. So if we have somebody with a, a kind of artistic mind, you see a rainbow and you are really marveled by the beauty that it has. Now a scientist that sees a rainbow starts questioning why. Why it is located where it is located? What is the relation between the position of the rainbow and the position of the sun? Why do we see these colors? Is it going to be always the same? Why do we have multiple rainbows and so on? And uh, it is also the boldness that we have, uh, thinking that we are able as human minds to explain whatever we see as a physical phenomenon. Now, the second thing that a physicist will do, uh, or a scientist altogether, is to try to construct a theory that is going to explain what we see. Now, in order to do so, there are two basic assumptions that we make. The first one is that uh, we can isolate one event, and the second one which we do is that we say it's not going to depend on time. So the same is going to exist always. Now, this is the difference, for instance, that you have with biology. The difficulty that we have in biology in order to construct a theory and understand what's going on is that we do not have this deterministic, and therefore we cannot apply these laws because these laws might change tomorrow. And also because it's a very complicated, a complex kind of events, and we cannot really separate them as we usually can do in physics. Now, in order to be able to just uh, come up with a theory, we have to use a symbolic language, and the symbolic language is given through mathematics. Now, in order to be able to achieve this, this kind of, uh, of theory, we have uh, as, as, as a most important kind of uh, step to uh, do an experiment. And this is going to help us, on the one hand, in order to refine the theory, and on the other hand, in order to test whether the theory is correct. 
Now, when you do an experiment, you come up with numbers. So again, we have mathematics that come into the game. If we go back to this example with, uh, with the rainbow, so even though the rainbow was something that went back to the, to the ancient times with Aristotle, it took centuries in order to understand what it is about. So it was when Descartes and Newton did experiments that they could finally come up with, the first of all, a geometrical explanation, and then to realize that the white light that we see is just a superposition of different colors. Now, of course, it's true that in order to, to construct a physical theory, we use mathematics, but one should not consider that mathematics is only a kind of a, a toolbox. It's true that we, we need our mathematics. It's true that we use mathematics to construct a physical theory. It's true that many branches in mathematics were developed from physicists in order to make some progress. Take calculus, for instance. It was developed in order to be able to solve Newton's equations of motion. But that's not only that. There are many things in mathematics which have been developed completely independently from physicists, and only long time later we have seen that they could be applied into, into physics. Now, the fact that there is a very deep combination, uh, a relation between mathematics and physics, one can see it, for instance, if you take Newton's law. So you have that force is proportional to acceleration. Force is a physical thing which we can measure. Acceleration, okay, today we have accelerometers and we can measure acceleration, but a priori what we know is the position, the distance. So acceleration is a derived thing which we get from a second derivative which is a complete, is a mathematical kind of notion. The same thing you can take in Einstein's uh, equation, you know, the equation which governs the expansion of the universe, whatever we know and we can confirm. You have, on the one hand, a tensor which actually gives you the way that you measure distances, so it's the geometry, the curvature of your space-time, and on the right-hand side, you have something which gives you the matter, the energy content. So we have the same equation together, physics and mathematics. Now, of course, then, if we go back to this stuff I said before, that there are many uh, things in mathematics which have been developed with not having in mind anything in physics and only many years later they found a position in physics, then you might wonder why. And uh, here it comes then this title, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in Natural Sciences. Now, I'm not sure that this is really very unreasonable because behind both mathematics and physics there is the same human mind. So the development of mathematics and physics goes parallel to each other, they cross each other, but at the origin is the same, same human mind. So it's, it's us as a human intellect that we try to formulate and to progress in both of these. So I'm not sure that is that disconnected one with the other. Now, it's true that mathematics are very beautiful. So something which astonishes us in mathematics is that it's a very nice, beautiful, elegant kind of uh, uh, natural sciences, and something which we don't particularly require in physics. And this may be for two reasons. One, because we use mathematics in order to do physics, so that means that we have this kind of, of, of uh, beauty that comes from mathematics. And the second one, which is probably more important, is that in physics what we care 
is to be able to describe the world which we see. And we believe that it's beautiful. The whole world is harmonious, it's elegant, so we don't have to require the physical theory that is going to explain to, to have this beauty. Now, you know that one of the biggest kind of, uh, um, I mean, that was the dream of Einstein, to be able to come with a unique theory that it could account at the same time for, you know, the gravitational force and the subatomic forces. Now, Einstein was not able to uh, accomplish, to, to fulfill his dream, which became the goal of all the generations afterwards. And it may be that the reason, even though we have made a lot of progress, but still we're far away from the final answer. And the reason behind that might be indeed that we don't have the appropriate mathematics in order to deal with these very extreme physical conditions. Now, certainly one can do physics without mathematics. You can do experiments, sophisticated experiments, without understanding what you're doing. And if, if I can make an analogy of that, it's like somebody who plays a musical instrument. You may be a, a fantastic pianist. I mean, you can hear, you have a perfect ear, you can reproduce what you hear. But if you do not have any kind of formal education in the theory of music, you don't really understand what you are doing, you cannot progress. So I think in that sense, mathematics is, is something that is an, 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 uh, an ingredient which is really very, very important in the development of any physical uh, laws. And of course, if we go back to the, to the uh, example of the rainbow, if you take somebody with an artistic mind and a scientific education, then you can at the same time enjoy the beauty of the rainbow in addition, understanding what you see. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, next up we have uh, Dr. Brian Roberts. <coughs> I'm going to pace around a little bit. I hope you don't mind. Uh, so thank you very much for this lovely perspective. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the name, where it comes from, uh, of, this, of this session. So there's an article published in 1959 called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in Natural Science. And this article is written by one of the great physicists of the 20th century, Eugene Wigner. <clears throat> and I was remarking uh, before the session that although Wigner is this eminent physicist who did some of the most important foundational work in quantum mechanics, quantum field theory in the 20th century, brilliant mathematician, brilliant physicist, one of his most cited articles is this one called On the Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. So this has received a great deal of attention. And I think it's, you know, it resonates with a lot of us just reading the title. Uh, in fact, so much so that I think many people forgot to then continue and read the rest of the article. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about what's, what's, what's inside the article, but also you know, why it resonates uh, so deeply with so many of us, this this way of putting the phrase, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences. So this is an old idea that there's some surprise here. Uh, I've got a few quotes for you. One from Tom, the uh, great English scholastic Thomas Bradwardine. Uh, uh, he says that it is mathematics which reveals every genuine truth. 
For it is known every so it for it knows every hidden secret and bears the key to every subtlety of letters. Whoever then has the effrontery to study physics while neglecting mathematics should know from the start that he will never make his entry through the portals of wisdom. Galileo, in the Assayer, says that natural philosophy is written in the language of mathematics, and its characters are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures, without which it is humanly impossible to understand a single word of it. Without these, one is wandering around in a dark labyrinth. And finally, uh, in the 20th century, Steven Weinberg writes, this is a great physicist, Steven Weinberg, uh, it is positively spooky how the physicist finds the mathematician has been there before him or her. So, Wigner wrote this article kind of capturing the spirit of amazement uh, about the role of mathematics in, in, in the natural si- sciences. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what he says there. I'm also going to give you a couple of comments. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to uh, spoil the surprise and tell you my comments in the beginning. Uh, I think it's important to remember that, that you know, although there are different, you know, in line with what Dr. Sakalayardin was saying earlier, uh, although there are some different aims in mathematics and in physics and in philosophy, there are many shared aims as well. And these shared aims can help us feel a bit more at ease with this puzzling surprise. Uh, and also that, well, not all things in mathematics are created equal. Although some of those tools we use for mathematics that turn out to be so effective in the natural sciences really are amazing, there are per- oh, perhaps almost as many that just didn't turn out to be that useful at all. Now, uh, Wigner's article deals with the, you know, you know, firstly with the following point. Mathematics shows up in unexpected places and with incredible accuracy when one seeks to describe the natural world. Uh, and why, now, why is that unreasonable? According to Wigner, it's because the main aim of mathematics is not the same as the main aim of physics. So what does Wigner take the main aim of mathematics and physics to be? This is a little fun. I think it's insightful, too, so let me, let me say a bit about it. The, for Wigner, the main aim of mathematics, this, is gonna, this might surprise you, it's not to manipulate numbers. It's not even to prove theorems. Wait a minute, I thought mathematicians, they manipulate numbers and prove theorems. No, Wigner says, the point, the aim of a good mathematician is to create concepts, but not just any concepts. Create concepts that are so powerful that you can make brilliant, simple, shocking arguments with them. This is kind of abstract, but this is, this is how we've used the aim. So you're not just writing down axioms and proving things. You are creating concepts and using them in a way that is powerful. That's the idea. And now, I don't have time to, or nor do I think everyone here has interest, to write down a beautiful, simple, powerful uh, example uh, in, in, in deep mathematics. But I will just show you something kind of pictorial that, 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 that conveys some of the, the shock and surprise that we get out of mathematics. So here's a, I'm holding up here a, a, a surface. It's a long strip. It's about 50 centimeters wide and uh, Uh, three centimeters deep. And if I, it's just a piece of paper, I can roll it up into a a cylinder like this. But if I twist it half a turn before connecting the edges, I get this curious object called a Mobius strip. And this object was 
described in great detail in the 19th century by Augustine Mobius. It hits the name. And now the Mobius strip, it's part of this beautiful, deep, elegant theory called topology in mathematics. And we use the tools of topology to describe some incredible, deep, powerful facts about objects like a Mobius strip. Now I'll just show you one just about how shocking this can be. I show this to students sometimes. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll take a pair of scissors. And I ask the students, you know, I'm going to cut this Mobius strip like a hot dog. You know, not against the shortest side, but all the way down the longest side. So I'll start the cut here. And as I cut, I ask the students, what's it going to be after I cut it? And maybe the first thought is, well, it's going to separate into two pieces. But then you say, well, but you know, he's making a big deal about this. It won't just cut into two pieces. Maybe they'll be linked. This is a very common answer. Either the two pieces or they're linked. And we get to the end, and it comes apart, and it's just one piece still. And it's not magic. <laughs> this is how it has to be. And so then, I'll, I, you know, I hope you'll uh, indulge me one more moment. Then I say to the students, well, let's try it again. What's going to happen if we do the same exercise, cutting down a long way of the Mobius strip one more time? Now, I could take a poll, but I won't. I won't. Uh, now, but, I, but imagine what goes through a student's mind again. First, we thought it would separate into two pieces. We realized that wasn't going to be clever. So we thought maybe it were two linked pieces. And then that damn Dr. Robert showed us wrong. So we'll be clever and say, well, it's just going to be the same thing again. A Mobius strip, perhaps it's just the type of object that as you cut it, it just keeps repeating the process again and again, becoming larger and larger. But when I cut it the second time, it's actually two pieces now, now linked. <laughs> so the Mobius strip is this unusual. <laughs> you cut it the first time, you get one piece. You cut it the second time, and now you have two interlocked pieces. And I'll just ask you to trust me. There is a powerful, deep, incredible, striking theory that allows us to say not only that that will happen, but that it must happen. And not only that, we can take any surface and we can understand the kind of deep, what are called topological properties that are responsible for this strange behavior. Very surprising, interesting thing. We just need to invent the proper concepts to understand it. So that's a bit about mathematics. Here's a bit about how to view physics. And this is, again, I'm going to kind of speak for Wigner and what the, what the aim of physics is. It's not like mathematics, according to Wigner. It's not about creating concepts, not principally. What's the aim of physics? Uh, this is very much in line uh, with, with the lecture we heard just, just now. What Wigner thought about physics is that it is about finding the fundamental patterns. The world's full of patterns. We want to find a certain kind of pattern, a certain kind of fundamental pattern. And it has this incredible character, the patterns that we find. They hold almost everywhere. They hold almost all the time. And they do it by describing almost nothing. <laughs> so you will take a feature of the state of the world, you'll eliminate almost all the properties that characterize that state. And what you're left with will allow you to state an incredible, powerful pattern. So an example of this that Wigner gives is, is this brilliant discovery of Galileo in, uh, stated in the two new sciences 
in the early 1600s. And Galileo, you may know, said by his students who have stood atop the Tower of Pisa and held two objects of different sizes, different weights, and dropped them. And what he predicted, and what he showed to be true, was that if you drop them at just the same time, from just the same height, they arrive at the same time. They hit the ground at the same time. But notice what I've done here. So the statement involves two objects at a height. They will arrive at this ground at the same time. What I don't say is that this book is yellow and this one's black and green. I don't say that there was a small breeze blowing through because I keep pacing around this room. I don't say that there's a certain temperature. I don't say that there's, you know, they have a certain mass. I don't say most of the things, the vast majority of things that you can say about these books. And once I do that, this is Wigner's idea. This is the central activity, is eliminating the unnecessary in order to state the simple and the powerful. And this is a different aim than mathematics, says Wigner. So there's lots of interesting examples uh, of mathematics that was developed, as was mentioned before, very early. We had it laying around, elaborate mathematical theory, and it just turned out to fit perfectly in physics. Now how would that happen if these are two enterprises with such different aims? This is kind of the, this is, I'm, I'm now trying to bring out in you the surprise that Wigner felt, I think, many of the, the, the quotes I read in the beginning uh, uh, represent feeling. And so just to give one example, Wigner suggests we think about uh, well, the origin of quantum mechanics. I'm not going to tell you a great deal about the origin of quantum mechanics, but you may have heard that uh, this clever fellow named Werner Heisenberg was involved in its discovery. And perhaps you even heard that one of the things Heisenberg did was introduce this interesting kind of mechanics, a new kind of mechanics that redefined multiplication. You, you know that if you multiply 2 times 4, you get 8. But also that if you switch the numbers, if you go 4 times 2, you also get 8. Well, Heisenberg suggested, let's think about quantities such that when you multiply them, you don't get the same thing when you reverse the order. So he's redefining multiplication in a way. And it was done totally in the abstract. He defined some further rules, and he found this was a very powerful way to describe the hydrogen atom. Now, Bohr and some other physicists who were, you know, this was a very young Heisenberg, he's in his early 20s. Uh, some other more experienced mathematicians and physicists noticed that this um, non commutativity, something that, uh, that we see laying around somewhere else, it's something that had been developed by mathematicians already. In fact, let me just say, non-commutativity is not so strange. You've seen it before. You know I've got an empty cup. Right? If I um, take a sip from the cup and then pour water in it, it's a different effect than if I first pour water in it and then take a sip from the cup. So many things are non-commutative. <laughs> And I, I bought this balloon because those of you who have a little bit of linear algebra will recognize this. <clears throat> if I rotate a balloon, I have a similar non-commutative effect. Uh, imagine, I'll, I'll draw two lines for you. One from the floor to the ceiling that passes through this balloon. And another one from my chest to you, the audience. Okay, so there's two axes. 
And I can rotate the balloon about the ceiling axis, or I can rotate the balloon about the audience axis. Okay? Now, if I rotate this balloon 90 degrees about the ceiling axis, and then 90 degrees about the audience axis, notice the tip, it started at the top, but it's now pointing to the right. Okay? Suppose I do it the other way. First, I rotate about the audience axis, and now I rotate about the ceiling axis. Now the tip's pointing towards me. So rotations are a thing that are non-commutative. Rotations of a, of a sphere. Uh, and you may have heard, rotations are described by a particular mathematical object in linear algebra called a matrix. And so this is what people realize. Matrices, this like, you know, mathematical object has been well studied for a long time. You could take this object, plop it down in quantum mechanics, and, well, in fact, it gave slightly different predictions than what Heisenberg himself had said. It was slightly more general. Heisenberg theory, Heisenberg's theory, it turned out, didn't say anything at all about atoms with more than one electron. There's some kind of um, periodicity requirements which prevented him from being able to describe such atoms. And there was no such requirement when you switched to just matrices in general to describe such systems. And lo and behold, you dropped the matrices in, and it worked perfectly. You had incredible accuracy in, in, in your predictions. And Jordan, uh, another major player in the development of quantum mechanics, later remarked that this was a crucial moment. There would have been despair if, this, <laughs> uh, if, if these tests had failed. This is where everything seemed to be leading. Uh, so my thought about all this is now. So Wigner's, Wigner's response to this, I think, it's very much in line. It's, a, it's, a, it's very much in line with uh, with what was said earlier. Um, look, there is a human mind behind all this, but not only that, it's one that seeks beauty. And this idea, in fact, it goes back to Einstein. Einstein remarks that we would only ever accept theories that we as thinkers thought were beautiful. And this may be part of it, but let me, let me suggest there are some other things as well. We said there were two aims. One, to create powerful concepts that allow for brilliant arguments. That was supposed to be an aim of mathematics. But isn't it sometimes an aim of physics as well? We need powerful concepts. This is kind of what we get once we start eliminating uh, degrees of freedom describing the state of the world. We end up with more powerful concepts. And we need brilliant arguments in order to establish it. This helps us understand what it is that we've done. Like the musician who actually knows a little theory and doesn't just know how to play out of habit. And similarly, the act of paring down what's not needed in order to focus on what is. When we understood the concept of a limit in mathematics, it's, it, you know, as you're kind of in the limit approaching uh, a certain point. This you know, kind of allowed us to understand many deep concepts like continuity, uh, um, notion of open and closed sets and compactness and many nice, many nice objects. But it turned out that none of this stuff really needed what we were assuming. We could throw away a lot of the baggage. We didn't need things like real numbers. We could do, use kind of more abstract things to talk about, say, a notion of continuity. Uh, so this happens in mathematics as well, that we pair out the irrelevant stuff in order to come up with something general, powerful, that doesn't use as much baggage. So that's my first thought, is that they're not so different, the aims. And maybe this helps us feel a bit more at ease with the surprise. Let me remind myself of my, my second thought. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> and not all mathematics are created equal. So this will just be a brief thing. Um, it's easy to... 
to recall the successes of the winners. But not everybody's a winner. Matrices were winners. Many other examples, uh, Sophus Lee developed you know, Lee group theory in the 19th century. That was a winner, huge in the development of quantum field theory. Uh, complex numbers discovered by mathematicians to describe a certain type of function and its zeros. Uh, huge in the development of quantum theory. Again, sorry I focused on quantum theory here. I didn't. <laughs> uh, but, but now, um, not everything in mathematics is quite so successful. I'll just mention two examples. Uh, in Euclid's elements, there's an there's a object in there called a compound ratio. There's not much treatment of it, but it was very important to people like you know, Galileo and, and, and the, the, um, the studiers of Euclid before modern mathematics came along. It was very important to them to understand you know, all of Euclid's theory, some of the most advanced concepts, and the compound ratio has allowed you to kind of compare like quantities in a certain way. And you normally don't hear about them when you learn mathematics in school because they've been totally superseded by fractions. We use fractions to describe these quantities now. It's overly complicated, the theory of compound ratios. Nobody really picked it up and made it into something. You could, perhaps you could, but it wasn't a winner like matrices were. Um, there's many examples like this you could give. Uh, I mean, arguably the theory of fluxions of Newton, you know, before we developed the calculus that underpins, you know, the modern calculus that underpins uh, much of modern physics, uh, Newton had a theory of flowing lines called fluxions. And these, you know, the flowing, the motion of, 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 the, of the mathematical objects kind of disappeared out of the language and we, we came up with different precise ways uh, due to Cauchy and other mathematicians of the 19th century uh, to describe these objects. So that the original theory of fluxions kind of fell by the wayside. It wasn't the winner like matrices. And I think, you know, they're a bit hard to think of because we tell the story of winners, but I think maybe it wouldn't be surprising that there are unreasonable, unreasonably effective uses of mathematics in, in, in the natural sciences you know, once we've had a more careful look at the not-so-effective examples of mathematics in the, in the sciences. That's all I'd like to say. Thank you. Thank you very much. That definitely wins the prize for best use of props in a philosophy talk <laughs> I have ever seen. Um, all right, so I think we're just going to have a bit of a discussion now, and then we'll open up to um, questions from the audience um, shortly. Um, and, and it's my job to start the discussion. Um, and I think I'm going to do so in a terribly uh, classic philosopher way. So I just want to draw a bunch of distinctions and work out where we all come down on different sides of distinctions. Um, that's a very philosophical thing to do. I was staying with... Um, a pair of married philosophers recently and I asked them what happened when they argued and they said, um, oh it's actually really useful because we can draw useful distinctions. For example the other day we established that I'm self-centred and she's selfish. <laughs> um, they said, solve the argument completely. Um, so anyway so I'm going to draw some distinctions. <laughs> so it strikes me that there's a few ways that we could tackle this question. I mean when you get these extraordinary examples of the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics um, one of the thoughts is this sort of almost mystical. There's this extraordinary fact about the world that our mathematics is so successful. And, and there, are kind of, there are different ways that you can make that question seem more reasonable and more tractable, or the, the, this fact about the world seem more reasonable and more tractable. I think one of them that's come up, um, so this is going to be sort of one of my distinctions, one of the things you can do is deny that it's so unreasonable um, in the sense that you can deny that mathematics is quite as effective as it seems to be from these examples. And this has been touched on 
a couple of times in, in this discussion. So, um, so you might think that sometimes mathematics fails or sometimes mathematics isn't successful in describing the world. And so mathematics is effective, but perhaps not unreasonably so. Another thing you can do is to try and say that there's something about physics and mathematics that means that it's to be expected that mathematics uh, should describe the world. So I think I'm going to leave the sort of first, so this is one of my distinctions, I'm going to leave the first one of that distinction for a second and come to this one, because I think one really striking thing about um, both Wigner's paper and, and uh, the kinds of things that Mary's saying um, is that... Um, for philosophers, there's sort of two, I mean, there are so many ways you could do this, but kind of two ways you could uh, come to a second approach, which is to say that mathematics and physics um, have some features that mean that you should expect uh, mathematics to be effective. Um, um, one of them is that you could say that there's something about us, and that mathematics and physics are both features of us, and it's some product of our psychology or our interaction with the world that makes those things to be expected. The second thing you could think is that there's something about physics and mathematics mind independently intrinsically uh, that makes it the fact that they're so successful. Or perhaps you can mix up some combination of the two. But I suppose one of the things that was very striking and maybe from a philosopher's perspective surprising that physicists would come down so firmly on this side was that both uh, Mary and Wigner kind of came down on the side of thinking that, that it was something about us, not something about the world. And Einstein. This is a very, very, very nice crowd to be a part of, you see. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so I suppose, I, I mean... I, I'm curious to hear more about that, and maybe curious to hear what Brian thinks about um, about this question. And um, and yes, and then perhaps I'll I'll defend Steve French, who's not here, and, and give maybe what I think his perspective would be in a second. But but I mean, is that something? Mary no, no, yeah, I agree. I mean, that's what I said. I believe that that the human the human mind is behind behind both, and uh, it's true that uh, often we find deep mathematical concepts to be at the source of the physical notions. And that uh, is, uh, you know, given that given that, that the human mind is behind both, then, then for me this is a bit natural. Now, coming back to the fact that, uh, that it was pointed out before that not always mathematics are successful, I wouldn't say that they are unsuccessful in the sense that the origin, the, the raison d'etre of mathematics is not to do physics. It is bigger than physics. Actually, what Wigner said and you also mentioned is all these concepts, some of these concepts, they do find some kind of position in the physical world, some not. So the, the set of I mean, mathematics as a set is bigger than what you will use to apply for the physical world that we, we want finally to describe. So, I mean, uh, that's not a surprise to me that some there are not of use in, in physics. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Um, I personally am also, I guess, a, a bit more hesitant than this, this wonderful crowd. It doesn't say good things about me, I think, uh, to, to, to attribute the harmony between mathematics and physics to the human mind. I'm hesitant. I mean, there's a very compelling argument in its favor. Uh, but, but, but why I'm hesitant, as you mentioned, is that there's all, there are also compelling intuitions that our mathematics and our, especially our, our description of the natural world in terms of, of physics and the natural sciences is getting at the real world. And that world would be that way even if there were no minds. And often people take this, the, these very successes we've been talking about as evidence that we're on the right track to describing the real world, whether or not there are minds. Uh, it's often put this way, that wouldn't it be a miracle 
if we'd had such incredible predictive successes and our theories turned out to be false. <laughs> what possibly could explain that? And so from that perspective, I find it hard to, to say that you know, the origin of both mathematics and physics must come from the mind. I'd like it to come from the world. Now, I, I think we've made enough mistakes in science as well that I'm also hesitant about that view. But insofar as one believes that it's a mind-independent reality, I think there, there is a tension here. So I had taken the, the Wigner um, point, perhaps, and perhaps your point, to be actually not quite one about scientific realism, the way you're making it. So, you know, are our theories true of the world, but actually one that's um, more of a kind of one of these philosophically subtle kind of Kantian points, right, which is that, um, in fact, our theories are true of the world, but what it means for our theory to be true of the world somehow has a, um, a, a conceptual contribution from, from our own cognitive makeup or something Something like that. Is that the kind of... Is, I mean, I felt, felt that was the kind of thing you were saying, that, that we think in terms of this mathematics. So mathematics is true by, by, of the world by virtue of the fact that we have these conceptual classifications. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, it's, it's amazing how often you find these sort of... Well, it's a very sophisticated philosophical view in, in physics. I think philosophers often want to believe that physicists are just kind of naive realists. Um, and, uh, oh, but many are, many are raging anti-realists, oh, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Um, maybe because Steve French couldn't be here today, and so I feel we've kind of lost, so I'm going to, I mean, I don't know, if, I probably lie more on the side perhaps than either of you do. So he, I think he, what he would say about the effectiveness of mathematics, he's a structural realist. He thinks that the world is a fundamentally structured object, and so he would say that the reason that uh, mathematics captures the world so well is not something to do with us. It's to do with the fact that mathematics is a discipline that's uniquely designed to capture symmetries and structures, and that one of the discoveries that we've made um, as we've got further and further into mathematical physics is that the fundamental stuff in the world, the interesting properties of it, are structural properties, and there's, there's symmetries. Um, and so I wonder, yeah, what do you think of those views? <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that's why I believe, as I said before, it's, it's very difficult to use mathematics in something like biology because you do not have this deterministic view that you have in the physical world. It's something that is it's going to be today, it's going to be tomorrow, no matter what you are going to change. Whereas for, in, in sociology or human beings, you can have any reaction spontaneous which you cannot foresee before. And therefore, these mathematical rules cannot be applied for this kind of studies, wherever the physical world is something deterministic, is something that you can foresee, so it's going to obey these rules. And the assumption which we make is indeed that it's going to be the same always, it does not depend on time, and you can as well, you can separate the various kinds of events. That is why we can make some progress. We can see what is important, what is not, and coming back to what Brian said before, that's why then the statement becomes very powerful, because you can isolate what is the important component. So in that sense, I mean, it, it makes sense to me why mathematics can be... Mm. Yeah, I, I also, I mean, I agree that oftentimes, um, I mean, just to maybe kind of add that isolating the important components can sometimes be abstract, and one might sometimes call it structural even. Uh, so, you know, we talked earlier, we, I just very briefly mentioned the, the, the theory of uh, Lie groups, which are a you know, special kind of symmetry group that includes things like uh, rotations of a sphere. And 
there is a sense in which you can see those types of symmetries being very, very basic. Many other interesting properties can be derived from properties of, of particular kinds of symmetries. And this can be used to ground a lot of, a lot of interesting physics, it turns out. Uh, and I think that's, that's perfectly right. It somehow doesn't help me you know, still not feel puzzled <laughs> about the fact that one structure was developed for completely independent reasons, just for the beauty and the simplicity and the power uh, of the arguments uh, involving these concepts. And the other one was used for a very practical application to understand concrete things, like what types of quantum particles there are. Um, Sophus Lee wasn't even understood by mathematicians at this time. He was viewed as doing a kind of fringe project. So I find this, you know, the fact that they were traveling with such different aims, these two, these, 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 these two communities. Uh, you know, I, I can see the usefulness of introducing words like structure, but it's not clear. It doesn't, in this case, help me solve my puzzlement. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I suppose there's another direction in which this... Um, this kind of the philosopher's tendency to realism, right, crops up here. Because one of the things that happens when philosophers worry about this problem, in as much as they have, um, they didn't really worry about it until maybe the 80s, and then they started worrying about it not as a question about um, really the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics, but one about the indispensability of mathematics um, in physical theorizing. And they started to worry that mathematics was so essential to our explanations of the physical world that this should support a kind of belief. So, so we've talked about realism about physics. They, they started thinking they should support a belief in realism about mathematics. So in some sense, and, and there's been a lot of talk about forming concepts and discovering mathematics. Well, well, invent, it sounded as if you were talking about inventing mathematics. But, but one of the ways in which this kind of worry has been used in um, the philosophy literature is to support a kind of really strong realism about mathematics, to say that we have to believe in these objects, because when we discover that um, the only way to explain some physical phenomenon is, that, uh, is to appeal to the features of you know, a Lie group, um, this abstract mathematical structure, then what we've discovered is that in the same way that we tend to believe in bits of, um, you know, in electrons if they're essential to explain the phenomena around us, we've discovered that we have to believe in mathematical objects in order to explain uh, the world around us. So there's this kind of two ways in which philosophy has gone off on this sort of, what seems by the lights of these discussions of a, a very kind of realist bent. Um. Yeah, I, um, I mean, the arguments in favor of mathematical objects, I mean, I've seen many of them, and they're all often very quirky and interesting. I just, uh, <laughs> me, myself, there are arguments that always end up establishing that on the basis of little to no empirical evidence that something exists. And what, it's the character of the existence is something that exists not in space or time. And I just, uh, my tendency going into such conclusions is, is one of skepticism. If you can't, you know, test it in space and time, then I, I find it hard to be convinced that it exists. I think it's also puzzling as to why it would provide an answer to the unreasonable effectiveness. I think some, I think there are people who think it does, and there's this question of, you know, I mean, isn't it even more mysterious, right, that, mm. uh, that, that mathematics is so applicable? Yeah. If, um, yeah, that's a good point. I think that's right. Uh, if, you're, if you're a Platonist, but, um, but yeah. But it's just this, this, this very interesting character that debaters kind of gets taken off in, uh, by, uh, by philosophers.
I guess I have a question uh, for Mari uh, about why it would be beauty. Of, of the many virtues, why would it be beauty, do you think? That both. I mean, because it's really, it appears in both in some way. And, and I, I felt it, you know? I mean, I think we've, we've all felt it, you know, that, that pull. But why, why is it beauty? I don't know. I mean, mathematics is, to my mind, the most beautiful I mean, thing we have. Is, 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 you know, it's intellectual, it's very beautiful, it's very precise, it's very, it's, it's, it's very elegant. I mean, it's, uh, um, and I think that, you know, mathematically, you can, never, you, you can never say if it's correct or wrong, in the sense that you can say, if you built this, this very abstract mathematical kind of notions, this, this whole kind of, 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 of uh, construction, if somewhere there's something incorrect, the whole thing is going to collapse. And that's the way that you can test if it's correct or not. It has to be perfect, it has to be consistent. In that sense, I say beautiful. It has to be. Now, physics, we don't do that because, first of all, we can make many approximations, otherwise we cannot solve things. Even we said we can, we can disregard many of the phenomena and just isolate one. Uh, and there is often this friction between mathematicians and physicists that you do not do things of the same kind of, uh, you are not very exact as, as mathematicians are not precise. But on the one hand, you use mathematics to do physics, so you get some of the beauty of mathematics, but then you want to describe the physical world. So that's the final test in physics. If, if I can explain what I see. Otherwise, my theory, as beautiful as can be, is of no use. And then we expect, you know, you take the, the word to be, to be well done, to be beautiful, to be precise. So that's where the beauty comes. But uh, <laughs> otherwise, I wouldn't say mathematics has this elegance, this very intellectual kind of physics, not to the same extent. But, uh, yeah. but it has the reality, on the other hand, which mathematics doesn't have. Mm. Uh, so the idea of making beauty a bit more precise in order to answer these questions seems very useful. You know, what you said before about what Einstein said is, is true that actually sometimes this might be a bit misleading because when we try to come up with a theory, we want things to be simple. We want the nature to be simple. We are struggling in order to find, you know, uh, the theory of everything. We are struggling to find one force that explains everything. It might be that this kind of simplicity is just in our mind, and it does not exist in the natural world. Why should it be? This is the bias that we do have because we have been educated that we are looking for this ideal kind of description. It might not be there. So it's true that we put some kind of you know starting point which which is completely uh, you know is completely uh, hypothetical. I mean, it shouldn't be there. It's very interesting. I mean, I, and I guess you can see the role. So here's at least some role for the human mind in this description of beauty. So the equation of, of Einstein that, uh, that Mari mentioned earlier, she stated it in such a simple way. It's lovely. Uh, the Einstein tensor is equal to the stress energy tensor. You know, curvature is equal to uh, 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 matter energy in a certain, in a certain sense. Uh, and it's so simple, it's so elegant and simple when you look at it this way. Uh, but in fact, as Einstein wrote it down, it looked a little different. He didn't use tensors in this way. It's a nice little mathematical object that makes it look simple. 
he had written down instead 16 nonlinear differential equations, which, is, you know, when you first look at them, they're a bit kind of bewildering, and it doesn't jump out at you that that's what you're looking at is a simple tensor equal to another simple tensor. Uh, now, when you write down Newton's theory, uh, F equals MA, that's a differential equation. Incredibly simple in that language. The language of differential equations, Newton looks very, very simple. Einstein looks very, very complicated. Switch to a different mathematical language, the language of tensors. Now, Einstein looks simple. And there is a way of formulating Newton's theory uh, in this language, and it is incredibly complicated. Uh, so it's kind of little-known, obscure facts that a mathematical physicist uh, named Carton uh, formulated Newtonian gravity as a theory of curved space and time. <laughs> And so it had much of the spirit of Einstein's theory that took gravity uh, to be curvature of space and time related to matter. Uh, but this theory you know, made different predictions. It made incorrect predictions uh, as compared to Einstein's theory. And it's very, very hard to state. It's very complicated. Uh, not quite, you know, not even close to, his el- to the elegance and simplicity of Einstein's theory. This is why I feel like um, saying more precisely what's meant by beauty could be helpful. Uh, um, it's not, yeah, it's not always obvious what beauty and simplicity even means. Can, can, can I say something now? Because you remind me, you know, this Einstein's equation that Brian just said, uh, if you want to solve it, it's very complicated. So uh, in order to solve it, people make some assumptions, a very drastic assumption, so they could go ahead and solve it. And decades later, it was solved, that the physical world obeys this assumption. So that you find something which indeed is in a way unexpected. That was a mathematical kind of simplification in order to solve a complicated set of equations. And then the data, experiments, observations have shown that this assumption that the human mind put to simplify our life and be able to solve them is exactly what the physical world obeys. So this, in that sense, is... It's really remarkable. Really remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, believe, I, uh, I believe Einstein wasn't even convinced that it was possible in principle to solve his equation analytically until uh, Schwarzschild produced a solution. So one of the things that's interesting about Einstein's equation is that it's about physical geometry. And, and physical geometry is a particularly interesting case of the kind of thing we've been discussing. So, so one of the things I thought was very intriguing about your presentation about, of it, um, Mary, was that you, you described it as um, having mathematics on one side and physics on the other. <laughs> and I would say about Einstein's equation, so Einstein's equation has uh, a tensor that describes the curvature of space-time uh, on one side of it, and then a tensor that describes the matter fields on the other side of it. Um, and I would have thought that the physical geometry of space-time was uh, describable in mathematical language in the same way that the matter fields were describable in mathematical language, but wasn't there by itself mathematical. It's just that geometry is somehow this... I mean, Kant was very puzzled about this. Geometry is, it has this extraordinary ability to be precisely described by mathematics, the features of space and time. But, but, but you think of space and time itself as yeah, mathematical exactly. in some sense, which for is you, very for interesting. For you, geometry is physics. For me, geometry is mathematics. Well, there's mathematical geometry that can describe spatial or temporal geometry. That's my thought. In the same way that, that another mathematical object can describe. Uh, for me, geometry. Geometry is mathematics. 
point. It's not, it's, you know, it's it like... It's, it's, so what's the you know, it's a, very, it's a very subtle kind of, of distinction. Where do you put the, that's why there is a very... It's like a continuous kind of way going from mathematics to physics. It's not a discrete kind of change. Here is mathematics, here is physics. You go continuously from the one to the other. And this is the example of what we say. For me, it's mathematics. For you, it's, mathematics, it's ge- physical geometry, whatever you call it. Physical geometry. Mm. For me, it's mathematics. Geometry is... is mm. But it's, is it mathematics describing something in the world? I mean, so most of our mathematics is, is a representation of, of something physical. And, uh, um, and no, you might have thought that this bit of mathematics was also representing something physical, space time. Or... For me, the difference is that, for instance, the, the, the physics is something which I can measure. As I, let's go to the simplest example of, of Newton's law. So, so you have the force and you have the acceleration. The force is something which is physical. I can measure it. The acceleration, you derive it as the second derivative of, you know, of the, the, of the, of the distance. So this is a mathematical concept. The same thing if I take Einstein's theory, I have the matter and the, and the energy at the one part, and I have the geometry, which will, the way that I calculate distances. So I put together geometry and mathematics. I don't take in that example that mathematics is a tool for physics. I take that mathematics and physics coexist in the same equation. You don't agree? I don't think I do agree. So I think that I, I suppose I don't quite see the distinction between using a second derivative of some physical variable like position that we can measure to represent the world and using some other um, complex function of things that we Measure. I mean, so, so, I mean, the force question is a funny one, right? I mean, it's not. I mean, I would have actually said the opposite. I would have said that we measure accelerations very easily because we're good at measuring positions and we're good at measuring times. And most of the ways we measure forces, I mean, I don't measure force directly. I measure force by measuring the acceleration of components or by theorizing. So I'm, I'm intrigued For by this. For me, the second derivative is a mathematical object, mm. and that's why I say it's not physics. I mean, what is a second derivative? How can physically tell me what is a second derivative, whereas the force, you can feel it. The second derivative is a mathematical... Well, I don't see... It, I mean, th- there is an interconnection of both, so I don't find, you know, in that... I see that they happily coexist in the same equation, physics and mathematics. So this, for me, is an example to say that not only mathematics is a tool to do physics, but mathematics and physics have a deep connection, and an example is these equations that we can see that they, they harmoniously coexist, and one meets the other. Otherwise, the equation has no meaning, has no existence. But. In, in the context of general relativity, uh, one of the things that they, always, they teach you in the beginning that you measure is geodesic deviation. You've got like two particles, in the sense, you're checking that they they don't just uh, they're not parallel lines in the Euclidean sense. <laughs> they can kind of separate or come together, and uh, so uh, does it, can one say that that type of thing lies on either side of Einstein's equation, or is it kind of pulling together both sides? Uh, putting like that as geodesic as you put it for me is the mathematical part of the equation. Now, the reason of this deviation is the physics, is the gravitating object that we put, 
and it would give you this landscape or, you know, of hills and basins, whatever that you are going to have. So the existence of the gravitating object is going to give you this deviation of the geodesic. So I need together in the same equation mathematically. That's at least is my way. That's lovely, yeah. That's very interesting. I think we should probably move on to questions from the audience now. Um, so yes, who, would, who has a question to ask? I think there's a roving microphone, so um, let's start with a question over there. <laughs> we can get it and... Hi. Isn't this um, something of a tautology? Isn't it actually easy to uh, explain the effectiveness of mathematics and science because we are actually defining real science as being that area of inquiry where maths works? And as soon as we step away into, say, economics or other areas where it doesn't quite work as well, we go, ah, yeah, you're a pseudoscience. Come back when the maths works. So isn't that a tautology? Will either of you like to <laughs> hazard it? In a way, what you say is exactly what we said before about a deterministic uh, kind of event. I mean, uh, economics is not deterministic, unfortunately, and therefore we cannot make these precise rules of how things are going to be evolved. So I think this is the basic distinction. If you have, I mean, the universality that exists in, in natural sciences does not exist in economics. So in that sense, uh, I can see, uh, I mean, indeed, that's why it is written there, effectiveness in natural sciences, which means basically physics, doesn't mean economics, doesn't mean biology, doesn't mean sociology or so on. Excuse me? I, well, I think from what I said, I believe the same. But. Uh, I mean, I have a, a, a uh, I don't think it's a tautology. Uh, I mean, I, I, I see the points, um, but I think one can read, so it, it may be true that what we call science, you know, is by convention defined to be something that involves mathematics. Uh, but I can put the question in a slightly different way. I mean, so here's the kind of more precise, linear way to put it. It's why, why is a practice that was developed with the aim of just having powerful concepts so effective in a practice with a completely different aim, namely the one in which we try to formulate laws? And when you put it like that, there's not really anything definitional about one appearing in the other. You have to kind of penetrate a little deeper and look for something that, that really pulls the two together. Yeah, I, mean, I would have thought that the example of... Um, so economics would be actually an example of, of these cases where we try and apply mathematics and it doesn't work, and it's important to acknowledge they exist. Um, I mean, if you think that... In as much as you think economics doesn't work. So um, I know that uh, the Black-Scholes equation is something that's been used as an example of, of misapplications of certain kind of idealization in, in places... Um, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's any less... I mean, that makes it slightly less surprising in the sense that we've talked about, that, um, that, that mathematics does work in other cases, because at least it doesn't always work. That would be really weird. But, um, but it, it still remains a substantive fact that, um, that you get very, very powerful predictions about empirical phenomena by applying mathematics that wasn't designed uh, to be applied there. 
Um, yes, in the front row. Uh, thank you. Do you want to put your hands up? I find this, this discussion very interesting but quite frustrating because it's been most, I mean, appreciate it, but it's been mostly about mathematics and physics. And the problem is, as all the speakers have actually said in many different ways, they're so closely aligned. If you look just at the relationship between physics and maths, you don't make very much progress in the discussion, in my view. But if you look at biology, and I want to talk also about probability, um, then you can get some traction on this. Because if you look at biology, which is not a pseudoscience, it's a very successful science, but mathematics plays quite a small part in it. And so by looking at biology, you can get an idea of what science is. And science is about finding conceptual categories that match nat natural categories. Okay, so it's a product of the mind, but it relates to something ontological, something real. Mathematics is different from that, and the alternatives that we've heard is if it's not something in reality, it must be a product of the mind. But that brings me on to talking about probability, because I think probability is really interesting here. Probability is a mathematical concept, I think. I hope we can all agree on that. What does it correspond to? Does it correspond to the world, or does it correspond to the mind? Well, it doesn't do either. It has a third kind of existence, and this puzzles me, and I don't have the answer to this. But when you look at how people try and think probabilistically, actually, it's clearly not something that's biologically there. It's very difficult to get the sense of it. Once you've got it, then that differentiates you from the majority of humanity. So it's not a psychological property. Does it correspond to something in the real world? Well, I, I believe with Definetti that actually probability does not exist. There are things in the real world which can be extremely well explained using probabilistic uh, methods of mathematics. But the world itself is not inherently probabilistic, and I could say what I think it is instead, but that would probably I'd be going on for too there's long. A, there's a great so, deal already in that question for them to answer. I'm sorry, what? There's an enormous amount in that question for them to answer already. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I'm going to stop here, but just say I think there's a third kind of existence that mathematics has. I don't know what it is, but I think thinking about probability, which isn't either mental or real, uh, might be an interesting case. Okay, thank you. So, biology, <laughs> biology and probability. <laughs> Uh, I mean, one comment on biology, um, uh, I mean, I found it a bit curious how you put it, that uh, you, you view the aim, I mean, it's very nice, you view the aim as uh, discovering conceptual categories, you know, like a mind-located object, that match natural categories, I found that nice. Although I might have, if myself were just kind of as a non-biologer looking at what was going on, I might have said you were discovering natural categories and just expressing them in human language in some way. Um, but I, and, I, and, and the point's taken that in this field uh, there's, there's not perhaps so much unreasonable effectiveness and that mathematics doesn't play the same central role. Uh, but of course there are very interesting and powerful mathematical arguments that appear in, in, uh, in biology as well. Um, things like Price's equation, 
that are very deep and general and powerful and broad. You know, they look a lot like a, a, some, some of the characteristics we, we describe physical laws as having. And I bet in those contexts you could ask very similar questions to the ones we've been asking. Um, and then on probability, one of the reasons I find it, I mean, so the way I, I, this is also a very interesting picture that you described. Um, of course, I view probabilities as a, if, you, if one calls it a measure with certain properties, it is pure mathematics. Uh, if one says, you know, starts interpreting it, saying things like, it's the sort of object that describes frequencies of, of, of events, then it's happening in the world. And to me, uh, you're describing the inability of humans to correctly predict how probability gets applied in the world. Now, there may be objective probabilities, and I think, and this is not, not time to go into this, but quantum mechanics makes a very compelling case for this, that there are some very deep uh, and, and irreducible probabilities that are required to describe the world. Uh, uh, um, so that's, I mean, that's, that's how I see the picture, I think, just in comparison to what you say, if that, that helps. Yeah, I agree with Brian a lot about uh, the probabilities, what he said. And this, uh, this measure theory is something which is extremely complicated and dangerous to, to find, to, to, uh, to apply it. So I think the probabilities is probably our, our uh, lack of knowledge in order to, uh, to, uh, I mean, you know, to see what's going on in the physical world. Now, uh, certainly you are right that mathematics have a much more limited uh, place in uh, biology, but uh, I think one reason for that is uh, the complexity that you have in biological systems, and you cannot really isolate it one uh, component than others, and therefore it becomes much more difficult to, to formulate the, the mathematical problem. Um, now, uh, I don't know, I might say something which is completely wrong, but uh, uh, it may also be that there is a much uh, longer connection between physics and mathematics in terms of time than mathematics and biology. And it may be that much later we can discover this kind of connection between mathematics and biology. If, if there is a connection between mathematics and physics, and it's better be a connection between mathematics and biology. I don't see why it's not. If there is for the one, it has to be for the other. Uh, but it may be that it's a bit premature to, to, to reveal it now. I don't know. Just to defend the idea that you can motivate this question in, um, in biology, I mean, Bigner starts his paper, I mean, it's not explicitly about biology, but he talks about population statistics. And the question is, um, you've got two guys talking, and one guy says, you know, I'm doing population statistics, and he starts mentioning pi. And, you know, the other guy says, well, you know, what's this pi number? You're pulling He's, my leg. Yeah. I can't possibly appear. No, no, yeah. So he says, what's this pi number? You know, the ratio of the diameter of the circle to circumference. And he says, oh, my God, well, yeah, what could that have to do with population statistics? So, you, so I, mean, I mean, that's less obvious than the problem in physics, but it's but we do have these. You know, and just one thought about that. I mean, so this is another thing I didn't I didn't say, but I mean, this is I think helpful progress can be made when you encounter these types of puzzles. You know, you, you can look at that charming little you know confusion of the of the uh, in the story. You know, a guy's asking, you know, why does pi appear in the description of say runners? Uh, uh, or some you know statistical description, and you can tell a story about that. I mean, sometimes it's very mathematical, uh, but you can tell a story that goes something like, uh, uh, and forgive some of the terminology. Uh, you could say something like, 
Runners are the type of, of entities that uh, uh, get described by uh, a Gaussian distribution, a certain normal distribution. And there's even a theorem that says, called the central limit theorem, it says they'll, they, they have to follow this particular distribution. And that, that curve just has a particular property that's closely related to a circle. Mathematically, uh, it's, it's, you're adding up a bunch of terms that look like e to the negative x squared. And this curve, if you integrate it from negative infinity to infinity, is a square root of pi. <laughs> you get a pi in there. I mean, e just turns out to be closely related to pi. So you can, actually, it's useful to trace through you know, how this thing appeared in there, and it can teach you. I mean, the central limit theorem is deep and important, and, and it can teach you something about runners and mathematics, too. So, I mean, the puzzlement is actually nice in, in, as, as you try and, and, and resolve it. Uh, you can learn things. So, Raymond, you... Keep your hands up, and then I, if you have questions, and I'll know to call on you in the queue. Um, yeah, um, thanks a lot for the very interesting discussion, first of all. And then, well, I want to join our chair in sort of fighting the structuralist corner a little bit, since Stephen French can't be here, just for the sake of argument. Um, and I want to do that by sort of changing focus for the question a little bit. So rather than focusing on effectiveness of mathematics, let's radicalize the question a bit and ask, why is it that something abstract and non-tangible like mathematics can be applied to the natural world in the first instance? I mean, what's going on here? So why is it that we can use an equation to describe matter? And the structuralist answer to this would be, look, we do exactly what Brian exercised when he had his uh, books in front of him. So you say, well, okay, the color doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether the book is black or green. You take the temperature away, which doesn't matter either. So you strip away sort of the accidental properties, as it were. And what you're left with is the structure of things. And that structure is in the things. You discover it by basically peeling off the stuff you don't need. And structure is what mathematics would give you a nice description of. And sort of that's where sort of the strand of mathematical thinking and the strand of, of physics thinking, but you, you don't have to call it physics. I mean, this sort of thinking works when you count your potatoes, effectively. Uh, so they basically converge on that. And this is a nice explanation of why mathematics applies to the natural world. Now, neither of the speakers seem to be very, be very favorable to structuralism, and there's just one want to press you again to say why you think this is wrong. I mean, what's bad about this explanation? I, I, don't, I don't think anything you said is, is, is wrong, actually. I think it's quite right to say that the activity of physics is, is, is often engaged in describing the structure of the world. I think that's a perfectly correct thing to say. Uh, where I feel structuralists often jump shark is when they say, and there can be nothing else whatsoever besides abstract structure. And I'm just, you know, I'm not sure what that means. That's what, I, that's what I principally have trouble with. I do know what a differential equation is in the abstract, and I know what these books are, you know, <laughs> and I think I know what things like acceleration and forces are, um, but to say that only abstract structure exists, I, I'm not sure I know what that means. Yes. Um, can I have a quick comeback? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, well, I'm obviously fighting. I'm devil's advocate here. So, uh, but 
Well, that's radical structuralism. There's nothing but structure, and I would completely agree with you. So, but if you run something like, sorry for those not familiar with that, but if you run something like a Shapiro line, you would say, well, there may be all kinds of stuff in the world, but the structure is among those things or properties that can be instantiated in, in a real object. There may be many other things, but the structure can be there, and that's really what science is picking up on. And so when you, when you want to explain how and why maths applies to the real world, you say, well, I'm committed to structures being out there in the world. There can be many other things out there. I'm not committed to only being structures, but also structures. And this is why maths applies. In some cases, these structures can be so complicated that we can't um, describe them effectively. That's probably what happens when we have social systems or complex biological systems. But um, that's so much the worse for us. That has nothing to do with you made the physical commitments. Uh, I mean, again, I feel this, this doesn't uh, help solve my deep puzzlement in that I'll still, I'll still be impressed that a structure discovered for one aim turned out to be so useful for a completely different aim, even if that is also structural, right? So I've got structure of the world, you're saying I've got abstract structure, and I feel I've got exactly the same puzzlement in that, you know, I was just trying to create power, you know, concepts that allowed me to make powerful arguments, Brilliant, deep, simple arguments on the one hand, and on the other hand, I was looking for laws. And now both involve structure, but there's, you know, there's still that same surprise. It's not obvious to me what structure gets me beyond. Uh, I think some people would think of mathematics as the study of, um, as the study of possible consistent structures. I mean, that's there's another way to conceptualize it. It's a, I mean, it's a special class of concepts. It's not just any concept that's mathematical. It's perhaps, I mean, in as much as we understand what an earth structure means. It's a, it's a whole discipline designed to, to provide you with things that could describe structures. I, I think that's the structural realist line. And if we had a good definition of structure, I'd be very on board with that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to come no, in? I'm you happy. All right, we had a question over here. Well, I think um, it's reasonable that mathematics is effective in science thinking of physics for the moment and geometry to focus on, I believe Kant believed we had a priori knowledge that the world geometry was Euclidean. That would have been amazing if we did have such a thing, although we can now explain it by evolution if we had to. But then, of course, he was wrong, because there's not just one geometry. There are lots which were later discovered. There might be an infinite number of geometries. There might be an infinite number of possible structures, deterministic and indeterministic. So, given that there is one world, it seems to me mathematics could not fail to be effective. It's a case of discovering what, I think Maria referred to a toolbox. If mathematics is a toolbox and it's an infinite toolbox, then somewhere in there is the appropriate structure for describing anything you want to about the world. Do you want to answer this? Um, yes, you explicitly said mathematics yeah, wasn't no, a toolbox. No, I said that I said that this is a toolbox, but not only. Okay. okay is it, mathematics is a toolbox, but not only. It's not, one should not consider mathematics just a toolbox for physics. I mean, there is, there is, there is a connection in the sense that you have uh, concepts from, from, from mathematics which are related to notions in physics. So, uh, it's true that we use them as a toolbox, but it's not the only one. That's the example I'm not going to repeat about Einstein's equations. So on. 
Now, uh, well, um, in, in some sense, what you said is a bit related to what I said at some point, that mathematics is much bigger than, than physics in the sense that the, what you have in mathematics, not all of that can be used in physics or will be, it will be essential in physics because you have more of these tools. What is amazing, and I think, unless I'm wrong, that that was the question, is the fact that we have these constructions from mathematics and we can describe so beautifully the physical world. Not a priori that mathematics can be an infinite kind of, you know, of toolbox and you can, anything you can have there, all the kind of geometries. If I have all kinds of geometries, okay, I have one word, one geometry, I will find it. I think that the deeper question is the fact that there is this description of the physical world through a mathematical theory. Uh, so uh, in that sense, there is the puzzle, if there is any. Uh, but not in the fact that mathematics is indefinite as a theory, and therefore I will find some application, given that I have one experiment to test. So I don't, I don't in that sense, agree entirely with, with, with this point of view. I, I agree with this, uh, with this perspective, uh, but would just like to add my uh, thanks to the questioner for reminding us that Kant was wrong. <laughs> More questions, please. Thank you, Esther. Wait for the mic. <laughs> there we go. Could I make a comment and then uh, ask a question? Um, Earlier, I think the first question raised issues about the use of maths in economics. And having taught economics for many years, I'm well aware that the criticism of the use of maths in economics is the maths that we have taken in economics and physics is too simple to do anything for us. And that if mathematical models are going to make any difference in economics, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be (laughs) ugly computational methods and all sorts of stuff that nobody will call beautiful or elegant. That's my... My, my, my question goes back to what Brian said in his initial talk, and, and I may have got entirely wrong what you, what, what you said or what you meant, but I think when you talked about things like continuity and limiting arguments, you said that because of mathematical developments we could throw away the baggage, and I just wondered whether that was always a safe thing to do. In other words, always to assume that the limiting argument works. Uh, well, no, okay, so I, don't, I, don't, I, I would not want to say that a limiting argument always works. Uh, what I meant was, let's take a, like, just to fix a concept like uh, continuity. Continuity was originally understood in terms of uh, uh, real-valued functions, you think of as curves. And there was developed in the 20th century many, many, many more ways to think about continuity, innumerably different ways to define this thing. Uh, you know, I'll just give you one classic one. So when you're talking about topology, it's the view that uh, a continuous function is one uh, that if you, know, if you have an open set uh, in the uh, image of the function, then it comes from an open set in the pre-image. And this definition is useful because all you need is a topological space. You don't need real numbers in order to, to state it. So what you've done is you've, you've, you've taken an interesting and useful concept that was powerful in the theory of real analysis. You pulled it into a more abstract... In fact, you threw away some of the baggage. You didn't need real numbers. And now you have something that you can use to study you know, ar, you know, arbitrary metric spaces 
complex numbers, you know, many different uh, and interesting structures, and study them fruitfully. And so, in this sense, this aim of this aim of physics that involves cutting away, you know, some of the irrelevant stuff can also appear in mathematics. That's that's what I meant to say. Thank you. Anybody over on this side? I haven't been looking over here enough. No. <laughs> oh, yes, good. <laughs> yeah, I'm just wondering about um, the equal sign in all of this, and what what kind of a character it is. Uh, the, the point that we, you were discussing about that maybe on the one side you might have something that's more physical and on the other side something that's more mathematical and the question comes to me then, so, so what is and I, I don't know the equation but it's something like the stress tensor on the one side this Einstein equation and the space-time tensor or something so if we have an equal sign in between these two things how are they different? What is their difference? Yeah, and then t- to wonder about because the, the title of the talk puts you in a slightly different situation where you have, it seems, the real world and a theory and the application of the theory. So something like equals going on here in the application of a theory, and I'm wondering how much a confusion of two kinds of equal signs can go on in any kind of discussion of this. You know, just, you know, what is the difference between what's on one side of the equal sign and what's on the other? And how is that difference different to the difference between the theory and what's actually going on in the world? Those kinds of questions are what are coming to my mind. I don't mean it doesn't have to be equals, it could be inequals. Any, the notion of an equation runs through the maths that we do, but then it's more like the notion of a question, maybe, that runs through the physics that we do. The relationship between a question and an answer, how is that different to the relationship between what's on one side of an equation and what's on the other side? And that sort of questioning is what's going on in my mind. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it shows somehow the connection between the two, that they're not really that different. Uh, so this goes back a bit in the, in the kind of uh, different point of view that we had before, whether you take this geometry as mathematics or if you take it as physics. But, uh, um, you know, for me, uh, it's, it's semantic somehow. I mean, if you want to take the way that I measure distances between you and me, shall I take that as, as mathematics or as a physics? I, don't, I mean, it's, it's, it makes no big difference to me how you want to call it. But the one... I can derive it. I mean, this 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 tensor, this uh, this Einstein's tensor, is something which will tell me about the structure of the space-time, the curvature of the space-time. And therefore, I call it that has a geometrical kind of notion, which to calculate it, I did I I need mathematical notion. So I call it mathematics, if you wish. The right-hand side, which has to do with the matter content, I call it physics. And, and what I try to say is that both they exist in the same equation, which means that mathematics is not just tool for physics, but mathematics and physics are coexist. One is, I mean, the reason of you have this gravitating object, and this gravitating object is going to deform your space-time, and you will see it in the geometry. So you have physics and mathematics being together. So I don't see this distinction between the two of them. Yeah. 
Uh, in, in that sense, I don't. That's why probably we have this difference. Do you see it geometry? Or do you see it? So it's. The, 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 for me, that was the example to say that is not only mathematics a tool for physics. It's something much stronger than that. So can I abuse my position as chair and, um, and, and explain that? So, because I'm curious about what we disagree on, because I'd sort of be surprised if we dug down if we disagreed all that much. But here's how I would think of it. So you have mathematical objects, and we can use them to represent the physical world. And this is a particular equation, like all of our equations, that use a set of mathematical objects, whatever those are, to represent the physical world. And then there's something, and, and so the equal sign is holding between mathematical objects, and then that, that tells you something about the physical world by virtue of there being this representation relation between what you're doing at the mathematical level and what's going on in the physical world. And now this particular equation has something very surprising about it, because it's describing... In the same kind of mathematics that sometimes we use to describe, um, well, in, in dynamical mathematics anyway, it's describing space-time itself. And the extraordinary thing about space-time itself is, unlike the books that Brian was talking about earlier, all of the properties of space-time appear to be describable just in the simplified mathematical language. So unlike, so on the, on the left-hand side of the equation, we're doing this very strange thing where the mathematics is wholly describing the object we're talking about. On the right-hand side, the stress-energy tensor is a very, very simplified, idealized um, representation like the books. And so the reason why the mathematics and the physics seem to be so close together on the left-hand side is that we don't have to strip away the color of space-time and you know, the, uh, the words that were written on space-time to get, get this description. It's, it's that space-time is sort of uniquely, um, um, well, perhaps according to structural realists, not uniquely, but, but, but exceptionally, uh, apt for description in the language of mathematics. Is well, that... this is uh, yes and no, because if you want to see more of the details, then you go to the quantum gravity, so this equation is not applicable anymore, and then we don't know what to do. <laughs> so if we want to take the details, and we see the details of the microcosmos, not the macrocosmos, then our theory, Einstein's general theory of relativity, fails we don't know how to do it. One reason that we don't know how to do it may be that we do not have yet the mathematical tools. It's not going to be a metric. It's not going to be a connection. You have to devise new tools, which we don't know. We made a lot of progress, but we're still far away from the solution. So the fact that I just forget about the microcosmos lumpiness there, and I take that is only going to be this classical approach, I can describe it this simple equation. So... I believe that here the same thing comes into the game, but just we forget about anything else and we take just the basic, important kind of, 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 uh, of dynamical phenomenon. But that's... Thank you. One more question? Possibly we have one or two minutes left. Yes. I was just wondering sort of to what extent the explanation of the effectiveness of maths in terms of the mind is really an alternative to the explanation in terms of the features of reality because surely if you explain the effectiveness in terms of the mind giving rise to maths and physics then you not just push the question backstage you have to explain why the mind gives rise to these ideas about maths and physics and then if you're tempted to explain it in terms of like I don't know, evolutionary biology or something and say that it's like evolutionary beneficial for us to come up with these concepts Sort of thing. So, to what extent does the mind explanation uh, not leave itself susceptible to going back to the sort of realism explanation? 
Yeah, I mean, that sounds similar to my, my worry as, as well, that um, if one places too much emphasis on the mind and the explanation, then it's difficult to maintain the reality of the external world. And I think that the idea of, of Eleanor and maybe Mari to some extent was that um, there might be some... Uh, some structuring that the mind does. I mean, this is the kind of Kantian idea. There's some structuring to your description of reality that the mind does. It doesn't just generate it, but it it's, um, structures in a very restrictive way how you can describe reality. Uh, that might be true. In a sense, it sounds like a psychological question to me, though, for which I don't know any good empirical evidence. <laughs> Kant thought that one could argue this stuff purely a priori, and I don't think you can do that. But there may be a fact of the matter as to whether or not our minds are restricted in this way. Okay. Um, I think we'd better leave it there. But, um, yes, thank you very much to the audience. Thank you very much to our speakers. Thank you, Anna.